So we're continuing through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, this week uh, we're talking about church leadership. Timothy is giving instruction, or has been given instructions by Paul on what church leaders should look like. The officers in the church, elders and deacons. You might be thinking to yourself right now, well that sounds not very interesting. But remember, even as Jerry was praying for revival in our land... Revival doesn't just pop. God has ordained the use of churches, pastors, elders, officers. And through these means, he brings about revival. These things are important because his mission is accomplished on this earth through the church. Remember that uh, Paul's mission statement is twofold. He writes the mission statement, I believe, in 1 Timothy 3, where he says that we would know how to behave in the household of God. That's why he's writing these things to Timothy. Because we're a household, we're a family, and we all need to know how to behave in this household. 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is undergirding all that the church does and all the leaders of the church as well. So remember, too, that this letter is a correction to false teachers. He's correcting something when he addresses elders in the church and false worship in the church. So under the inspiration of God, he talks about these leaders and officers in the church of the living God. And it's no surprise that Paul desires godly leaders. The false teachers had ravaged the church, we think, and he wants Timothy to know what the leadership should look like. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, God's holy inspired word. Would you please stand for the reading of this word this morning? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. Let us pray. Our most gracious Father in heaven, We thank you that you've given us Jesus Christ as the good shepherd, the head of the church, our leader, our king. We pray in Jesus' name that by your spirit you would open our eyes to the truth of your scripture. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. When you look at the health of any church, what you're really seeing is a mirror of the leadership. 
It always mirrors the leadership. Mary Kay and I were listening a few weeks ago to uh, a podcast on Mark Driscoll, who is a, a pastor of a megachurch out in Seattle, I believe, and kind of the rise and the fall of this man and really the destruction of the entire church. Though The church was thousands wide with many campuses, and at the end of it, it all was nothing. In just a few short years, it came to nothing. Why, you might ask? It was a leadership. And it was Mark Driscoll's leadership. We believe that uh, leadership is important because the Scripture believes that leadership in the church is important. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about our, our form of government. It's Presbyterian. That just is from the Greek word presbyteros which means elder-led or elders. We have a plurality of elders. All the elders have a vote, a single vote. And through much prayer and discussion, we trust God to give us wisdom. That's the Presbyterian form of leadership. There are other forms as well uh, that we can talk about some other time. If you go through the new members class, we talk about each one of those and why we believe that The Presbyterian form of government is the most biblical way for a church to be governed, to be led. But no amount of good government is going to make up for bad leaders. That's why Paul wants good men in leadership. If the leaders are ungodly or carnal men, you're only going to find dissension and confusion. No amount of business savvy or gifting or knowledge or leadership can make up for that. And Satan is smart. Satan is is a smart being. He's created by God, and yet he's given some authority to deceive on the earth, and he attacks. He attacks the church, and it's most often through the leadership. You just need to turn on the news or read the paper, and you see this. Satan will come against your leaders relentlessly with all sorts of temptations and attacks. So we're going to talk about leadership with kind of a battle focus, with that in mind. The title is Church Leadership. We're going to talk about the government of the church, kind of as context. We'll talk about the battle itself. And then we'll talk about qualifications that Paul lists here. Those will be the three points, the government, the battle, and the qualifications. So we mentioned that the leadership of the church, I believe, is Satan's particular target. Either he's going to seek to destroy the leadership through external attacks, temptations from the world, temptations from those around him, the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, sex, or money, or immorality, or A lust for power, flirtation, fame, or fashion, or fortune. All these things have brought many church leaders to ruin. And the church follows in its wake. But there's also internal attacks where unqualified men maybe are appointed to be elders. And from within, they kind of bring turmoil to a church. Or within the church, nitpicking and grumbling about leadership or decisions. 
Either way, the flock is wounded and the church of Christ is dishonored. So it's important to understand what the scriptures say about leadership. I want you to look at verse 1 with me, please. The saying is trustworthy. We're talking about the government of the church. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. When Paul makes this statement to Timothy, the pastor, he's assuming a common understanding of church government. The saying is trustworthy. In other words, you've heard this saying before, and I'm telling you, Paul says, that this is right. The saying is trustworthy. What comes after this is well-acknowledged truth, Timothy, and I want you to listen. If anyone acknowledge, or aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's the saying. And Paul says, this is right. So Paul's assuming that Timothy and really everyone in the church knows what an overseer, what an elder does. And don't be confused by the various words that Paul uses for elder, for overseer. It's translated different ways in different translations. Episcopus is the word that's often translated overseer or bishop. Overseer, I believe, is the best uh, translation, in my opinion. And then presbyteros, elder. Presbyteros describes the title, if you will. Overseer describes the task. But both refer to the elder. And we know this is true because in Titus chapter 1, Paul uses both terms describing the same men, the same task, the same elders. He calls them both things. So he's talking about elders. The thing that is trustworthy is that those who aspire to the office of elder, overseer, have a good task ahead of them. It's a noble task. Paul also tells Titus later that Titus should appoint elders in every town that he goes. The implication being that this is the way churches are led. They're led by elders. Every local church should have its own ruling elders. And then we see in Acts chapter 15, like the first presbytery meeting or the first general assembly, where all the elders from a region come together and they submit to the authority of the larger gathered body of elders. So we summarize in saying that the local church should be ruled by elders. A plurality, that means they all have equal votes. Jerry's vote is the same as my vote when we come to voting for anything that we do and any other elder as well. We have equal authority. And this includes teaching elders and ruling elders. We delineate between the two, ruling elders being those who rule, teaching elders being those who teach and rule. Teaching elders are typically called pastor. I'm a teaching elder. 1 Timothy chapter 5, here's where we, where we see this most clearly delineated in Scripture. Verse 17, the elders who direct affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So there's some elders who, who rule and there's some elders who primarily preach and teach. But the reality is when it comes to shepherding the church, they're both elders. The interesting thing to remember, too, is that it's Christ's church. So when Jerry and I are sitting together and we're discussing the the welfare of the church and praying for you, 
Jesus is with us. Jesus, God, is guiding us. That's our hope. That as we prayerfully consider the welfare of the church, the flock, that God is with us. So when decisions are made, they come from God, ultimately. I'm encouraged by John Calvin. I remember for many years, he wanted to have the Lord's Supper every time the church met on Sunday. And the elders said no. And he wasn't angry. He just said, okay, Lord, your will be done. You see, he had such a reverence for, and John Knox as well, similar things happened in his parish, his church. Such a reverence for God and the authority that God established that he trusted God to use the session. The application for us, I believe, is the same. The elders, when they make decisions, they have one voice. If you have ten elders and six agree and four disagree, when they leave that room, they have one voice because, in a sense, the Lord has spoken. And we're talking about a godly group of men. We're not talking about a dysfunctional church. So, from the perspective of the flock, you prayerfully consider the session meetings, you pray for the elders, and then when they decide, I'm not saying everything is this way, but when they decide generally, you praise God. You praise God for giving them wisdom. As long as it's a biblical decision, it's one that should be submitted to. The beauty of what God has given us as well is that there are multiple layers of accountability and oversight. This is for your benefit. It's also for the benefit of Jerry and myself. It's for the protection of the body of Christ because he is the head of the church. Christ rules his church. All authority belongs to Jesus. He's the good shepherd and the elders are the under-shepherds. And it's a noble task to desire to be one of the under-shepherds, one of the officers in the church. That authority is real. I want you to remember that as well. Christ, when he went up to heaven, rest before that, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, I have all authority. And then he tasks the elders. He tasks the disciples. He says, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. That holds true for every session in every church where Christ is named, biblically named. He's with us. Earlier in Matthew, he says that he's giving the keys of the kingdom to the church leaders. He's leaving, but he's leaving his leaders with authority, and it's not hypothetical. We'll talk more about that in a moment. You might be saying to yourself right now, well, I know Jerry, and I know Richard, and you guys aren't all that special. Well, Jerry's probably the one that holds it all together, if truth be known, but you guys aren't all that special. I know you're sinful men as well. So how can I trust that 
to govern this church. It's because Jesus Christ governs the church. And the means by which he does that are prayerful, the prayerful decisions of humble and contrite and sinful men in every session. It's the same. We want to submit to Jesus Christ in all things. Before I move on to the second point to the battle, I think it's also important to remember that Christ's rule, his kingdom rule, is not like any other kingdom on the earth. It's not like any other form of church or of government on the earth. How do governments rule today? How have governments and kingdoms always ruled those in their constituency? Ultimately, by power. Sometimes by the sword, by coercion or force. The goal of the church isn't power, but service. The goal of the church and the means that, that we use isn't force, but it's grace. Clowney writes, kingdom, Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of grace and glory. The cross is the way of his saving grace. So we don't accomplish anything by the sword. We don't accomplish anything by coercion. We don't rely on political power to achieve our ends as a church. We rely on Jesus Christ and the gospel. The saints in the church and the elders, we are fighters, but it's not with a physical sword. It's with the sword of the Spirit and the gospel. Our weapons are not carnal, but spiritual. Our power is declarative. We declare the truth. And the elders have the responsibility to ensure that that truth is declared biblically and accurately. So for these and other reasons, I think the the battle is very real. And the weapons that we need are not physical weapons, of course. They're weapons that your overseers, your elders, your shepherds need to embrace. And think about it too. Why would Paul say that it's well accepted that we should, that it's a a good thing to desire to be an elder? Why is that a a well accepted thing? Why would he mention that? It seems like the, the reverse would be true that those who actually shun the office of elder are the ones that you would want. But the scripture says the opposite. One of the reasons is because elders are going to suffer. If you were an elder in the time of Paul, you were probably going to suffer greatly. It was to be persecuted, to be imprisoned, and Paul's saying that despite all the hardship, it's a noble task to desire to shepherd the people of God. False teachers run when persecution comes, and false teachers destroy the body and then abandon the body. But the battle is real, and real men are needed, and it remains so today. So let's talk about the battle. We've talked about the the government of the church in general terms. Let's talk about the battle. We see uh, kind of an allusion to this in verses 6 and 7 said an elder who, who does poorly could fall into condemnation of the devil. Not that the devil's the one condemning, but the same condemnation that the devil is subject to. And also that we should be careful that he doesn't fall into a snare of the devil. 
Whenever Jesus and Paul and the apostles talked about elders and talked about the church, they talked about a fight. They talked about a battle. They highlighted the devil's attacks and the devil's schemes. So it's no surprise that Paul talks about the devil here. It's a real battle. There's a kingdom mission on the earth, and that mission is to worship God, to shepherd his church, and then to proclaim the gospel, to disciple the nations, to bear witness to the world. And for all this, God has established his church as the primary instrument. And the leadership of this church have have been targets since the very beginning of the attacks of the enemy. Now, of course, all Christians, all of you are in the battle. It's not just your elders that are fighting. We're all subject to the attack of the enemy. And this warfare against the devil on earth. And it's clear that Satan seeks to devour the whole church, and he hates those who are God's children. If you have faith in Christ, you know that Satan hates you. But the reason I believe that the leadership is targeted is because if the leaders fail, so often we see this, if the leaders fail, the church fails. Or the church is in such dissension, in such turmoil. that the mission is hindered in some way. So the devil's mentioned here. Before he talks about, or in the midst of talking about all the qualifications, he talks about Satan and the attacks of Satan. So, for this reason, you should pray for your elders, for your deacons, for the officers of the church, those involved in teaching ministry, whether it's the youngest members of the church or Sunday school, it doesn't matter. Pray for those who are on the front lines. Pray for your elders. Pray for your officers. They're going to be attacked. Let me show you just a a few quick examples of this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Timothy 2. You should correct your opponents with gentleness. Verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Remember, he's writing to the church, to Timothy and his church in Ephesus. He's saying some of the church are captured by the devil to do his will. You need to correct them with gentleness. 1 Peter 5, Be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And if you remember our study of Revelation about a year ago, the whole book of Revelation is this depicting this battle between Satan and the church. And we know that the church is victorious because we're sustained by God himself. So when Jesus talks about the church's growth and the mission, it's no surprise that he also speaks about this battle, but in a very positive way. Matthew 16, after Peter makes the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Peter's declaration that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Son of God, is the ultimate foundation of the church. And Peter, as a church leader, 
would be leading as well, this church, and he's given confidence that there's a battle coming, but that they would be victorious. You notice the gates of hell. It sounds like the enemy's on the defense, doesn't it? He's behind the gates. And indeed, that's what we see in the spiritual world today. And ever since Christ's resurrection, Satan's the ruler of the air. He's described as the prince of this world. But in so much as God has allowed him to deceive this world of men, that's all. He's God's devil. But with the advent of the New Testament church, Satan's kingdom is being greatly reduced, and its influence is no longer what it once was. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. So remember that we are all part of this kind of wilderness-wandering, heaven-bound pilgrimage as ambassadors on this earth, all of us, each one. And each of us are engaged in the battle. But part of your duty, part of the way you fight is to elect qualified elders and deacons to serve and then pray for them and then prayerfully submit to their leadership. This is part of the battle plan of God. They need your prayers. To fail as an elder or a deacon, or to fail as someone elected to office is catastrophic for the church. So Paul highlights, of course, an immature Christian as being someone who could bring about the devil's attack or someone whose reputation to the world is poor, in these verses that we just read, he's a, he's, in other words, he's a known sinner. He's a known sinner in the world. The outside world looks at him and has no respect for his Christian leadership. So part of the battle is choosing good men. As much as you can, choose men that honor God with their lives. Pray for them and submit to them. Okay, let's talk about the actual qualifications. We've talked about the church government. We've talked about the battle that we face as a church and that the church has faced since the beginning. Now let's talk about qualifications. Notice in verses 2 through 7 that none of this is really difficult to understand. It's actually almost self-explanatory. They're not difficult to grasp. And the reason is because he's not just describing an elder, he's describing a Christian. This is what you all should be. The elder, of course, must be, but what you should be. He's describing the Christian life. God desires the church to elect godly, serious, diligent, humble men to office, men who will honor God above themselves, who are servant leaders, with a holy love for Christ, the good shepherd, and a holy love for the flock, for the sheep. A couple illustrations of how this goes wrong before we discuss the ways Paul says it should go right. How could you fail in your election of officers? I've seen, you've probably seen these before as well in the churches you've attended, if they've been elder-led churches the first one I call the prestigious man error. You're just going to elect a man but because he's successful in life. He's got a lot of money. He's got a, a family that seems to be healthy. Or he's got a, a successful business. He's rich. He's powerful. Maybe the mayor 
you know, you want to elect the mayor as part of your local church because it would bring so much prestige to the to the church to have a, a famous or powerful person, a successful person on the session. Paul mentions nothing about that. He seems to go the other way. The other one I, I've seen, and I know you probably have as well, is kind of the the pragmatic view of a session of elders. Like you need voting blocks. Uh, I'm going to push for all these men to be elders because then I'll be able to get stuff done as a pastor. If I, if I have a whole bunch of people that like me, then I can just get stuff done quickly. It's a very pragmatic way to look at it. We need a majority to get stuff done. So these are obviously errors. It's a, it's a lack of trust in God, isn't it? For God to raise up good and godly men to govern his church. The third one that I thought of was the I've got a call error. Well, I know I've got a call. My life is a little messed up, but I've got a call. I need to, I need to be an elder. I need to be a pastor. I was watching a, a female pastor describe why she believes that even though the Bible says females shouldn't be preaching and teaching, have authority over men, that she feels like she should. And her answer was, I've got a call. I've got a call from God. And of course, this translates to so many other. There are men who have had public affairs as pastor, affairs with other women. And after a, a time of discipline, they come back as pastors again. Why? Well, I've got a call. They're obviously disqualified. But they say they've got a call. Your call never exceeds the Scriptures. So that's not possible. Or homosexual men. Yeah, I've got a call to be a pastor. No, you actually do. You do not have a call. It's not possible. Because your call will be in line with Scripture. So what are the things that are mentioned? Let's go through them just uh, briefly. First of all, he says, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach or blameless. This is kind of the general heading for all the stuff he's going to talk about after that. And what he's really saying is there's no public or outrageous sin. There's nothing there you look at and you go, that guy had an affair four years ago. I know. And it's, it's something that will always be in my mind. No, there's nothing like that. So when you think of who you're electing as elders, he should be above reproach. Nothing that would bring discredit to the church should be part of his life. Now as elders, I know and Jerry knows that we are not above reproach. We are sinners. So you can't take it to that extreme that we have to be perfect because of course we're not. Elders should be godly men. But our righteousness comes from Christ alone. He's the blameless one. Secondly, they should be the husband of one wife. Paul is certainly prohibiting polygamy. He's prohibiting infidelity. He's not pro prohibiting a divorced man, I would say, from serving. As long as it was a biblical divorce. Or someone who just isn't married. The husband of one wife and it assumes that you're married. But Timothy wasn't married, we don't think. Paul wasn't married. So the elder needs to be, if he's married, a one-woman man. Oh, by the way, he needs to be a man. 
but he needs to be a one-woman man, committed to his own wife, to that relationship, to that woman, serving her as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for it. Well, I said a whole lot right there that will get us canceled from Facebook very quickly, didn't I? If they ever start listening. Number three, sober-minded. It should be someone who's sober-minded. The elder should be serious about Jesus. His life is serious when it comes to things of Christ. His Christianity is not just something, a Sunday thing. It's his life. And he takes it seriously. There's no flippancy at all about the work. Fourthly, we see that he's self-controlled. And remember, too, when I'm going through these, these are for all of us as Christian people. This is, he's describing a Christian. And he's saying as a Christian who's an elder, these things you should be focused on when you choose your elders. Self-control. He's not subject to wild excesses. This is someone who is personally mortifying sin in his life. And he's self-controlled. He says that this person should be respectable, whose life and godliness is worthy of respect from the inside and from the outside of the church, as we've, we've read already. The other qualifications really accomplish this, and all of it is hinged on one thing, isn't it? Jesus. It's all hinged on Jesus Christ. If the man loves Jesus, if he has a true and real love for Jesus, the rest of these things probably are going to take care of themselves. Because you serve the king above all else, your life is going to engender respect. You have a moral courage that is separate from what the world puts out. And it generates respect. There were so many people in my squadron who didn't agree with me at all about my love for Christ, but they respected me. Because I was obviously willing to risk promotion, assignment, whatever, for something that I thought was much, much bigger and more important. This is the kind of thing that you want to look for in an elder. Number six, he's hospitable. An elder is a man who has a love for others. He's not a private man. His life and his home are there for you, for the sheep. His flock knows they're welcome into his life. I've heard of pastors who go on vacation and someone in their flock dies. And they don't come back for the funeral. It's their, it's their private time. And I think it's horrible. This, this is not a, an eight-hour-a-day thing. This is your life. Your life as an elder is for the flock. And there's no private space or time, ultimately, for a, a shepherd who loves his flock. The love of Christ will control you, that you live for others and not for yourself. He's hospitable. He's accessible. Number seven, he's able to teach. This is a man who knows the word of God and can teach it. It doesn't mean you're all called to stand here at the pulpit or all called to teach Sunday school. But when you talk to someone one-on-one -on -one and you're discipling that person, what they hear is gospel truth. And the one-on-one -on -one time with your elders is often some of the most precious time that you will have. Seek Jerry out. Talk to him. I'm available as well. Number eight, not a drunkard or violent or quarrelsome. Lover of money. I combined a bunch of them there. 
Again, they're kind of summarized negatively here in what he summarized positively before this. Certainly, if there's a violent or quarrelsome person for many, many reasons, or a lover of money, for many reasons, you should not have that person as your elder. They shouldn't be abrasive, argumentative, self-indulgent people. They should be people who understand their sin and with humility and gentleness desire to, to shepherd the flock. That's number nine, gentle. They should be gentle, like Jesus, the humble, gentle man who was strong in his faith, would not back down from the truth, but humble and gentle and kind, not argumentative. There's no room for pride in Christianity. There's definitely no room for pride on the session. Number ten, he manages his household with all dignity. And Paul gives a reason, doesn't he? If you can't manage your household then you're not going to be able to manage the flock, the family of God, the household of God. This is one area that's really difficult for a church. When I was interviewed, uh, the session wanted to, to meet me and meet the family. And that was really the only opportunity they had to talk to the family. And it's just because it's hard. It's how, do you, how do you get to know how, he's, how this man is with the family? And I believe the only way to know is to talk to those who know him. Unless you just ask him, and he, he should tell you, of course, if there's issues. But there's just so much involved in a man and his home and his authority in the home. Is he a man who, when he sits down at the table, his wife and his kids look at him, and they have respect for his love for Jesus? They have respect for him and his dedication to the kingdom of God? Or do they look at him and think, mm, I'm glad you're not an elder? This is a man who serves his wife and his children. He's a servant leader like Christ was from the church. His wife doesn't rule over him. The curse of Genesis 3, your desire will be for your husband to rule over him. His wife doesn't rule over him, but rather he leads his wife as Christ led the church. He carries the cross for the family. Number 11, he's not a recent convert. We're not talking about age. We're talking about... How long has this person been following Jesus Christ? Number 12, he's well thought of by outsiders. Again, this is fascinating, but it highlights the third part of the church's mission, and that's to be a gospel proclamation to the world. So outsiders should know, whether they know you're a Christian or not, they should know this is an honorable man. This is a man who keeps his word. This is a man who's kind. And the church is always judged by its leadership by the outside world. When they put a, a news story up about the church, what are they showing? They're showing some leader who's fallen, right? It's always the way it's been. And to be well thought of by outsiders is nothing more than just a result of someone who loves Jesus. Again, this is for all of us. We should all be well thought of by outsiders because we all have committed our lives to our Savior. So, in summary, nobody fulfills these qualifications perfectly. This is true. Jerry knows it. I know it. But when we come together to talk about our flock, we come together as two men who are reliant on Jesus Christ. And we pray for wisdom. 
nobody's perfectly qualified for this. But certainly you can look at someone's life and you know if someone's not qualified. If it's a public thing, if it's something that you've noticed and it's persistent, you need to have take pause before electing that man to work as your elder. Remember, too, that God has given us a mission in this world, and that mission involves your job to elect men to serve as elders, and it involves the elder's job to serve you as shepherds. And it's important. It's a battle. So let's conclude with just the ministry of this high calling, this ministry. It's not something to be avoided, we've seen. It's something to be desired. The church needs men who are willing to suffer for Christ. And make no mistake, when you serve as an elder, those of you who have served in the past, you know you're going to suffer. You're going to be attacked. The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to conspire to attack you, to keep you from being effective. And what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, each one. We hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, Paul told Titus. You hold firm to the promises of God. My charge to you this morning, in light of this, is to remember Jesus Christ, the head of our church. Jesus Christ, the king, the ruler of our church. And remember that he's given authority, spiritual authority to your elders and pray for them. Pray for them. When you elect elders, choose well and prayerfully for no other reason except that this is a godly man who has a desire to serve. And he's qualified. And then submit to the leadership of your elders. Don't grumble. Don't complain. If you have problems with Jerry or me, come talk to us. We want to talk to you. But anything that goes on behind the scenes, you're playing into the devil's hands. It's that simple. That's gossip, and it's grumbling, and you're actually grumbling against God. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock wrote this, and this is for all saints, but especially those who would presume to be elders in the church. It is better to be on a dunghill with intimate fellowship with God than upon a throne without it. Crosses and sufferings fit good men for special service here and eternal happiness hereafter. Fire refines gold, which prepares it for service. Without crosses, how could you exercise heroic faith? How could you believe against hope if there was not something to contradict your hopes? I think for all Christians, this is relevant. This is a battle we're in. It's a battle that's already ultimately won. We all, in the midst of our, of our lives, are going to have losses and crosses, and they're sent by God for our refining. And this certainly applies to those who serve the flock as elders and shepherds. So pray for them. Pray for them that God might use them. And thank God, thank Jesus Christ for raising them up. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you that you have established your church for your purposes. You have established the government of your church for your purposes. The leadership of this particular church you have established for your good plan, for your goodwill. 
Lord, we pray for those who would aspire to serve as elders in the future. We pray in Jesus' name that they would be godly men, that they would be excited to, the, to this noble task to which you are calling them. We pray for wisdom for our church. Lord, whenever this would happen in the future, that they would have wisdom and insight, that they would remember what these qualifications are, but mostly that they would remember that Jesus Christ himself has ordered his church for his glory. Lord, we pray for the mission of this church. We pray for the mission of this body of Christ. We pray for the gospel to be proclaimed boldly, that the battle we would remember is ultimately already won, and that in the midst of the attacks of the enemy, we can have courage and hope that you are king, you're the king eternal, the only wise God, and we can trust you. Lord, encourage our hearts, we pray. Jesus, be with us, we pray. Holy Spirit, touch us. In Jesus' name.